God, we thank you that we get to come together as a church, as, as a group of people who want to know you more, and that we can experience the truth that you have for us by your word. And so we pray that tonight that you would speak to us. We know that your word is, is living, and it's active, and it's empowered by the Holy Spirit to touch our hearts. And so we pray that tonight that you would do that, and that each one of us would be aware of your presence and aware of your voice, and that we would hear and draw closer to you and be more like Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you would have your way with us tonight, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So, just for full disclosure, usually when I sit down on a Wednesday night to teach, I have a rough idea of basically how long it's going to take me. Uh, in the sense of, like, I know I'm supposed to shoot for 40 minutes, and I'll probably hit 50 minutes, and I'm just kind of okay with that. I kind of quit fighting it. Um, and, you know, we'll get through two or three chapters and, and just kind of take it as it comes. Tonight, I have no idea how long it's going to take to teach this, because I think it might take an hour, and I think it might take 20 minutes. And so we'll just kind of see what happens, and if it wraps up in 20 minutes, that's cool. If it wraps up in an hour, you know, you can shoot me. That's its own thing. But Second John and Third John are very short letters. They're sometimes called postcards of the New Testament. And really, they're a group of three letters, which would be 2 John, 3 John, and Jude, which are sort of the short, last little letters of the New Testament before we get to the book of Revelation, which is the sort of the final unveiling of what the end of the world will look like when Jesus Christ comes back. And a lot of, you know, they're all, the three books are short enough that a lot of people do them all at once, and uh, we actually did that last year on Wednesday nights going through, I think for the second to last Wednesday of the year. But tonight, I wanted to split it up into two because I wanted to have a little bit of time to just kind of ponder some of the truths that are in here. Um, these, are, these are short books, but they sort of go with the less is more approach. And so what's in these books is not uh, something to read and then be done with. It's something to read and then ponder. And so, yes, we're going to cover some short material tonight. That doesn't mean that we're covering insignificant material tonight. So, Second and Third John are both written by John the Apostle, or John the Disciple of Jesus. He's the brother of James. Uh, and in the, in the Gospels, you see him as one of the really close associates of Jesus during his earthly ministry. It talks about Peter, James, and John went with Jesus up on the mountain. Peter, James, and John went with Jesus into the room where Jairus' daughter was dead, and they got to watch Jesus raise her back to life. And so John was a man who was active from very early on in Jesus' ministry and had, a very, had very close and special access to watching some of the miracles and the teachings of Jesus Christ. But John also will eventually be the last eyewitness of Christ. John is one of the earliest and he's also the last. He's the last surviving one. And so by the time John is writing this epistle, and this is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 AD, so Jesus died in about 33 AD, give or take. And so this is about 50 years later. John, at this point, has uh, gotten to watch the birth of the church. He's gotten to watch heresies creep into the church. He's gotten to watch persecution come into the church. He's gotten to see his friends die off one at a time because they believed in Jesus Christ so, com so compellingly that they would not stop talking about him. They were not willing to say, no, you're right, it's a myth. No, he was just a good teacher. They were not willing to say, yes, he's one of the gods. They were, they were adamant to the point of death that, no, he is the only true God. And John has now gotten to watch all of his, pretty much all of his friends die off 
all of his old friends, die off one at a time for what they believed. And John is the last, not because uh, he didn't endure persecution, but because the Lord kept him alive. At one point in time, a Roman emperor tried to have John boiled alive in oil, and it didn't work, uh, which if you've ever experienced burning oil, you know that that's not really the natural process. You dip your whole body in boiling oil, you die. So the Lord is keeping John alive for a reason. And John had ministry that, he wasn't yet, that hadn't yet been fulfilled. And we might not know all of what it is or what it was, but we know that we're reading the words of John tonight. We're going to be reading the words of uh, John in a couple weeks when we start the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights because God wasn't done with John. John's age didn't exclude him from ministry. John's age actually set him up to be in a position to receive what God had for him. So John opens up, 2 John. And because it's only one chapter, most people don't say 2 John chapter 1, they just say 2 John verse 1. The elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. So, <clears throat> right at the beginning, John tells us who's writing it, and it's the elder, and that's how he identifies himself, and it's a couple of things, if, if you can picture in your mind an ancient scroll, the, if you're writing a letter, you'd put your name at the top so that as you're unrolling it, you can figure out who it's from, and you don't have to get to the end, and if you think about it, we still do the same thing today, because we kind of switched a couple centuries ago, and now we write our letters, you know, dear Steve, blah, 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 love so-and-so, but... There's a return address on the envelope, right? But I open the letter and I see who it's from. If I get a text message or an email from somebody, I see who it's from and decide if I want to read it. Most of the emails I get, I see who it's from and I decide I don't want to read it, right? So, we, so John's identifying himself and then going into the letter. But he identifies himself as the elder. And that could be one of two things. It could be he's saying, this is my position in the church, which is possible. Uh, it could also just be he's saying, this is from the old guy. John, at this point, is an old guy. And just, this is an old guy writing a letter. And he addresses it to the elect lady and her children. Now, there's, there's speculation that really isn't super significant, but just so you know, people aren't totally sure if he's writing to a literal lady with children or if he's writing to a church and referring to the church as the lady and the people in the church as the children. It doesn't really matter. There's some grammar things that make people kind of lean one way or the other, and, uh, and it's, it's sort of insignificant, but it is things people will talk about. And so you'll sometimes hear a pastor say, well, obviously he's talking about this, or obviously it's so clear he's talking about this. It's not so clear. Um, it doesn't matter, because the applications he's making, whether it be to a lady or to a church, are still relevant by the way he applies them. So he says, this is to an elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. So notice a couple things. He says, I love the elect lady in truth. So if it is a literal lady, he's, he's specifying that there's nothing you know, underhanded about this. This is in truth, kind of like you know, love, loving someone in Christ. This is in a spiritual context, but he says that I love her in truth and also all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us. And this is what would honestly make me suspect that he's writing about the church because all of those who have known the truth would include us 
And I don't love any specific lady from the first century church, but I do love the church that got established. And, but he's tying a thought in here. John's going to spend a, a big chunk of the letter opening up and emphasizing truth, and then he's going to switch to emphasizing love. And he, he gives us both of them because they're both critical in order to balance out the other. So he says, I love this lady and her children in truth, and not only I, but all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us. And if you kind of take it backwards in your mind, what he's saying is if the truth of God abides in you, then you will know truth, and then you will be able to love in truth. And that's a major thought because of a couple things. First of all, the truth of God abiding in you means that truth is received. Truth is not something that you create. It's not something you establish. It's something you receive. Truth is something that is greater than you and I, and it is given to us by God. And so if you receive that truth, and you abide in that truth, and because of that you can know real truth. The world has an idea of truth. The world has an idea of what's relevant, what's real, what's really real. But if it's not grounded in the truth that God reveals to us, then it's not true. So if we've received the truth of God, and we know that truth, then, and only then, it's possible to love in truth. It's possible to love in falsehood. We talked about this the last couple of weeks in, in the book of 1 John. It's possible to love according to a standard that the world sets, which is not actually love, it's actually self-devotion. And John emphasizes in 1 John, and he's carrying the idea here, that there's actually a different kind of love that the world does not understand. There's a love that is self-sacrificing. There's a love that is of a higher order than what the world defines as love, and it's the love that we have through Christ. But John's making a point that the love that we can experience through Christ, that true love, is only available through truth. You can't have true love built on falsehood. You can only have true love built on truth, and you can only comprehend real truth through God, through abiding in the truth that God reveals to us. So verse 3 He's going on, he's, he's sort of continuing his intro. He says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. He's emphasizing the truth thing. Are you noticing? He's already said it like four times tonight. But he says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you. Now, grace, we've talked about before, is receiving the good things that you don't deserve. Grace is when God says, you know what, you don't deserve to have fellowship with me. You don't deserve to have blessings in your life, but I'm going to give them to you anyways because I'm a good God. Mercy is when we don't receive the things we do deserve. It's when God says, actually, your sin is far worse than you can imagine. You are more evil than you think. You deserve hell at a higher level than you comprehend. And because of what Jesus Christ did, you don't have to experience it. And those two things then bring about peace. And peace always follows those. We've talked about this over and over all year long. Peace follows grace. If you don't have peace in your life, it's because you haven't fully experienced grace in your life. If you haven't experienced what God is offering to you through what Jesus Christ has done, then you will not have peace. But John, because he's the old guy, can say things sort of emphatically. That, that's one of the, the thrills, I think, of being an old guy. I can't wait. I, I, like, it's coming someday, if I live long enough, right? I'm just, like, the old Christian guy is a vastly underappreciated role in the church. 
But one of the things about it is you can quit being speculative and you can just be authoritative. John doesn't say, hey, you know, I hope grace, mercy, and peace will be with you guys. He doesn't say, hey, you know, I'm sending some grace vibes your way. He says, you know what? Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. And now he ties it back again into his intro. If you are in truth and in love, then guess what? Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you. You don't have to hope that they'll be with you. You don't have to wish. You don't have to think. You don't have to strive to make them come. If you are abiding in the truth and love that we receive from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, then grace, mercy, and peace will be with you. So if you don't have peace, take it back and and realize that that means you haven't experienced grace in your life. But if you're struggling to understand grace in your life, then take it back and find out if you have truth in your life. Because if you don't have truth, you can't comprehend grace. And if you don't have grace, you will not have peace. Truth matters. But he emphasizes that it's truth and love. And John's going to tie these two ideas together throughout the book. And so he's going to go on here. And he says, I rejoiced greatly, in verse 4, that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. So John says, I rejoice when I have, that I have found your children walking in the truth. John says, I am encouraged by knowing that there are Christians walking faithfully. And that is a massive encouragement. Never underestimate the power of a quiet but faithful testimony. Especially if it's yours. Especially if yours is kind of quiet and kind of boring, but stable and faithful. Never underestimate it. So he says, I rejoiced that I found some of your children walking in the truth. And now, verse 5, I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning that we love one another. He says, okay, basically, I'm so thrilled to hear that you and your children, be they literal or a metaphor of the church, are doing well. And now, I'm going to just ask you to do something that you already know. I'm going to exhort you to walk in something that you already understand, and that is that we love one another. This is something that we, John says, we've had this from the beginning. We've understood this from the beginning of our understanding and our comprehension, that we love one another. And number six, he says, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. John says, what you've known from the very beginning is that we need to love one another. But loving one another is keeping the commandments of God. But he's told her just a second ago that keeping the, the commandment of God is to love one another. And so what John is doing is John is he's explaining a circular truth. And this is different than circular reasoning. Circular reasoning says, okay, we're going to use A to prove B, and we're going to use B to prove A. Your classic example is we know that these dinosaur fossils are, are however old because of the rocks they're in. And we know that the rocks are that age because the dinosaur fossils are in them. And basically what they're saying is we've established an outside truth, which is an age, and we are going to just keep looping this without ever stopping to validate it. That's circular reasoning. A circular truth is something that is so true that you go from point A to point B and back again, but when you come back around, you understand it a little more, and it's still true. And then you go back to point B, and you understand it a little better, but it's actually still true. You go back to point A, and it's still true. It's actually more true. 
the, the more you understand and the more you loop that truth, the deeper your understanding of it goes as you comprehend it more and more. So what John is saying is the commandment from God is that you love one another. But to love one another is to keep the commandments of God. And if you follow the commandments of God, you'll love one another. And if you love one another, you'll keep the commandments of God. What's he saying? He's saying you need to walk in truth and in love. You need to walk in the truth of God's commandments. And as you do that, you need to love one another. And that's going to drive you to walk in the truth of God's commandments. Because here's the thing. Truth without love is not truth. And love without truth is not love. If someone's going to say, oh, I love this person, therefore I won't tell them the truth, that means they don't love the person. If someone says, I'm going to tell you the truth, but I'm going to leave out love in my delivery, that means they're not telling the truth. Because the, if, especially if you understand the character of God, we're told in, in 1 John that God is love. We're told elsewhere in the scriptures by the, that God cannot lie. So one of the other definitions of God is that God is truth. And so if I say I'm going to deliver truth with no love, then what I'm saying is I'm going to deliver part of the character of God. But if I deliver part of the character of God and I leave out part of it, that's not the truth. That's the truth, the half-truth, and some of the truth. That's not truth. If I say, oh, God is love, so I'm going to just, I'm going to just emphasize the love, but I'm not going to ignore the truth, then I'm negating part of the character of God. I'm saying the character of God that's defined as love, I'm only going to explain part of it to you. And so to walk in love without truth is not to walk in love, and to walk in truth without love is not to walk in truth. And that's why John is emphasizing to the lady and her children, or to the church collectively as we read this book, that yes, we know the truth, we walk in the truth, we comprehend the truth. As we do that, that drives our love. And as we walk in love, that needs to drive our walk in the truth. And if you understand that, you never run out of where you're going. You never quit finding truth. You never say, okay, I maxed out. You never say, oh, I'm done loving. Because there's no end to that. What happens is it's so true, if you will, that you, it's almost like a circle and a spiral. It keeps going up and up and up, but it's still on the same circle. And as you go on it more and more, you will comprehend more. You'll get higher up. The view will be farther, but you're still on the same truth. And what will happen is your ability to comprehend the scope of that truth and the scope of that love will expand. But John says, love one another and love one another by keeping the commandments of God. <coughs> and now he's going to go on and give us a warning of the converse. He says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. John says, be warned. There are people coming who are going to tell you either truth without love or love without truth, but they are not going to tell you the whole thing. They are not going to confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. And it's, and it's important that he emphasizes Jesus Christ. Because in John's day, the, the primary heresy that was facing the church was to say that, oh, Jesus was God, but he wasn't really man. And in our day, the challenge is, is that most of the heresy coming against the church says, oh, Jesus was man, but he wasn't really God. And that's why John emphasizes Jesus Christ. Christ is, is another word for Messiah, Jesus the Savior. Jesus the God came in the flesh, and he was fully God and fully man. And John says, hey, people are going to come and say that's not totally true. 
And those people are deceivers and they are of Antichrist. They are opposed to Jesus Christ, therefore they are Antichrist. Now there's a the Antichrist who's, who's coming eventually in the last days. But there are people who are, if you will, of his kind, who have been around ever since the beginning of the church. And he says, look to yourselves. Be on guard. Don't just, don't just accept all teaching just because it sounds good or because somebody says they're a Christian or because they have a, a cross necklace or because they're holding on to some sort of idea that, that feels nice and spiritual. Look to yourselves. Be aware. Be paying attention to what people do with Jesus Christ. You can, you can identify, truthfully, any cult, any false religion, by how does it treat Jesus Christ. If they make him a God and not a man, not a Christian. If they make him a man and not God, not a Christian. They might be nice people, but they are evil workers. They are workers of evil because they are antichrist if they deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Verse 9, he says, whoever transgresses, or in some, way, uh, some translations say, go ahead and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. In essence, anyone who adds to the word does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Now, there's a, there's a cultural context to that verse that's important to understand. And that is that in the ancient world, there wasn't really what, anything that we could identify as a hotel system. There were inns, which is where you basically either uh, committed violence or committed immorality. And there were not inns. Like, you had very limited options. And so most of... So the ancient world, and still the eastern world today, is uh, very driven by hospitality. Very driven. I remember we, we, uh, we had a group of Saudi Arabians over to our house one time. And we were asking them about cultural differences and what's something that's odd in the States that you wouldn't do back home. And they said, oh, help yourself. Because in Saudi Arabia, that would be so offensive to tell your guest, help yourself. That means you have failed as a host. If you have to help yourself, that means I'm not helping you as a host. And they were, they were super chill. They understood we were Americans and, and were weird in that sense. But, um, but there's a difference. Saudi Arabia, the eastern cultures of the world, place a massive emphasis on hospitality. And John's saying, listen, you need to understand something. It's okay. What he's not saying here is that you can never be gracious to a person who has a false doctrine. But he says, don't ever support what they're doing. If they come to your house, if the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness come to your house... It's okay to be gracious. It is not okay to let them come into your house and preach false doctrine. And it is certainly not okay to let them come into your house and walk away thinking we're on the same page. Because we're not. Because they deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. They don't see Jesus as being fully God and fully man. And so what he's, he's, he's not denying Christian the right to be gracious, but he's saying don't don't pronounce blessings on them. Don't greet them. Don't say, hey, God bless you guys. You know, go, go to your thing. Good luck. No, no, no. You can be cordial, but you need to be very clear because love is driven by truth and truth is driven by love. If you love, if you love someone or if you love the soul of someone, you're going to love them enough to speak truth and say, that is not true. And I cannot let you walk away thinking that it is. And I also... 
I'm not, and so, the, so just John's saying, don't support bad doctrine, either with your energy or your money or your, your generosity of any kind. Don't, don't support bad doctrine. Don't let people who hold to bad doctrine think they're on the right path because they're very nice people, but they are evildoers. They are anti-Christ. It doesn't matter how nice you are. If you're anti-Christ, you're anti-Christ. And that's evil. And John says, do not, do not excuse that behavior. In verse 12, he says, Having many things to write to you, I, do not wish, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. <coughs> if you care to know, you probably don't, but that's okay. The children of your elect sister greet you is one of those things that makes some people say it's probably written to a church because it would have been a very odd greeting to not have the sister greet the lady. And so probably he's saying, hey, the people from this church also say hi. But be that as it may, he says, I have many things to write to you, but I didn't want to write to you. I want to come to you and speak face to face. John understands something in the first century that we, 2,000 years later, are starting to comprehend. And that is that there are different ways of communicating with people, and there's different kinds of relationships you can have with people. And there are certain relationships that you cannot have over a screen. There are certain kind of relationships you cannot have over an exchange of letters. And it's not to say that we don't, I mean, it's not to say we don't appreciate the te technologies that are there that let us communicate with people all around the world. It's great. But there's a temptation sometimes to think, oh, you know what? This, this texting relationship or this online relationship is, is more fun or more valid than the people I'm around because the people who text me are nicer and use exclamation marks, right? But it's not real. I'm not saying the person isn't real. I'm not saying they're not being sincere even. They might be a sincerely gracious, friendly person. They might be a fellow believer. And you're, you're sending each other prayer requests and you're keeping each other in the loop of what's happening in your collective mission fields. But here's the deal. There's a kind of fellowship that happens face to face. And specifically, a kind of fellowship that happens when two Christians are face to face. Because John says, I want to come to you face to face that our joy may be full. Now, we're told elsewhere in Scripture that in the presence of God is the fullness of joy. So if our joy is full, it means we're, in essence, in the presence of God. And when you are with another Christian, the Holy Spirit that dwells in you is the same Holy Spirit that dwells in, in another believer. And so there is a fellowship that can happen between believers that is deeper and more sacred than any other kind of fellowship. And so don't underestimate that. You can have, I mean, you can have friends who you do all kinds of cool stuff with or crazy stuff with, depending on what kind of friends they are. And they're not believers and you can have a great time and you can enjoy their company, you can work with them, you can do whatever, but understand there is a difference between friendship and fellowship. Fellowship is we are communicating together on a spiritual level. And it happens by being close to one another in the same space, in the presence 
of the Holy Spirit who's in both of our lives working together. So don't sell yourself short on personal interaction. Highly underrated. But that wraps up the book of 2 John. And now we're going to move on to the book of 3 John, which is a very similar style of letter, probably because it's written by the same guy. And so it has some similar flow, but this one is a little bit different because he's writing to a, we know for sure, I guess, that he's writing to a specific person. And so he opens it up. He says, the elder. And, you know, so to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. So Gaius opens up the scroll and says, I wonder who this is from. Ah, it's from the old guy. Verse 2. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. It's a great verse. It's also a verse that gets twisted because it's basically the, the premise verse for the entire prosperity gospel movement, which is that God wants you to prosper. And God wants you to be in health, and God wants you to be rich, and God wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy. And that's really not what John is saying at all. And, and I can say that with quite a bit of confidence for a couple reasons. One is that that doesn't correlate with the rest of the scripture. If you take a verse and you say, I think this is what it means, and then other scripture verses contradict it, guess what? You interpreted it wrong. And you need to go back and say, well, what does it mean? So here's what... I think it means. John is writing to the beloved Gaius. John's going to identify him later as one of his children, which presumably means one of his spiritual children, as far as we know. So if you're writing a spiritual child, someone who you have helped raise up in the Lord, John says, hey, I hope you're doing really well. That, that's a pretty good intro to a letter. I mean, we sort of do that, you know, if you write somebody you haven't seen in a little while, hey man, hope it's going well. That's not you know, there's nothing super fancy or there's no, you know, there's no Mercedes or Bugattis in that verse. It's just, hey, hope you're doing well. Now, it is interesting. He says, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Think about that for just a second. John says, I'm praying that you will be as healthy physically as you are spiritually. Now, if right now, in this room, the Lord were to make every person as physically healthy as they are spiritually healthy. Where would that put us? It's a, it's a, it's a good question to just sort of think about for a second, right? Because, you know, I can look around the room and get a pretty good estimate of your guys' physical health, right? Some of you would surprise me one way or the other, but I could ballpark, Right? I'd have the doctor. I know how to. I know how to guess BMI, and you know, like, there's some high blood pressure going on. There's some. Ooh, or as my. <laughs> there's so many things my dad says that I probably shouldn't say, but you know, there's certain things like. Well, I might as well say it because he says it, so you can just get mad at him. There are some people who my dad knows. He goes, I wouldn't sell a 20-year life insurance policy to that person. <laughs> but you can look around and kind of get a gauge, like, okay. I got a hunch where this person's at physically, but spiritually it's a little harder to tell, right? You can, you can kind of hide things. You can put on a little bit of a show. You can, you know, show up and be nice and friendly, and it's a little harder to tell where someone's at spiritually. Even if you're, like, super honest, oh, you're just being vulnerable. You know, like, you can be, you can, like, stage your vulnerability in increments to make it look like you're more spiritual and humble than you are. Like, we're, we're Christians, we're great at putting on a show when we want to, 
But what if God were to bless you with the same physical health as your spiritual health? Would that be a blessing? Would that be a blessing? If God said, okay, I'm going to give you physically what you have spiritually. Does that make you nervous? And if it does, then here's the great thing. Stop it. If that makes you nervous, understand saying, what do you need? You need grace, mercy, and peace. Well, where are you going to find that? In truth and love. If you are like, well, hey, I'm, I'm, oh my gosh, I'd, I'd be in the hospital. Well, then guess what? Get yourself out of the hospital. Turn around. Repent. If there's sin that needs to be repented of, repent. If there's compromise that needs to be dealt with, deal with it. Walk in truth and in love. And then experience grace, mercy, and peace. But John's just saying, hey, Gaius, or Gaius, whichever one, you can pronounce it however you want. I don't care. I pray that you are physically as healthy as you are spiritually. Think about what that means for John to say that. Think about how, that, how John perceives Gaius. Verse 3, he says, For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. John says, man, I just want you to know I can't think of anything that I'm happier of than to know that you are doing well. One of the, one of the greatest things in life is to catch up with somebody that you have not seen in a long time and to realize that they are still serving the Lord. And, and not just like still surviving. Like they're still serving the Lord. Like they still talk about Jesus Christ like he's real and like he's relevant. And like they actually enjoy being a Christian. They still talk about Christianity like it's real. And like they've experienced joy in the Holy Spirit. That's one of the most encouraging things a Christian can do and experience. Is another believer who is walking faithfully. So John says, Gaius, I want you to know that's what I have when I think about you. I have that joy at your testimony. Verse 5, he says, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may, we may become fellow workers for the truth. So, he says, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. And it's not super clear, at least in English, and I'm honestly not sure how it goes in Greek. So he could be saying, hey, you're doing faithfully, and that's awesome. He could be saying, hey, you need to do faithfully. And I think it's truthfully both, because he's already told us that he's blessed by his spiritual growth, but he's going to give him an exhortation, and we'll see in verse 11 that he's going to exhort him to imitate what is good. So what he's saying is, hey, you're doing great, but do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. And he specifically, he's talking about Gaius' generosity. And he says, what you're doing for those who, verse 6, have borne witness of your love before the church, if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. So John is outlining an idea here. And that is that the role of a Christian is to send. Now, here's the deal. We are all missionaries. We are all given the gospel. 
which is that Jesus Christ is God, and he came to earth and lived as a man, and he lived a perfect life. And because he lived a perfect life, when he was sacrificed on the cross, his death was so holy and so complete that it paid for every single one of our sins for all time. And if you accept that truth, you are cleansed by his blood, and you are now part of the family of God, and you have eternal life instead of eternal death and separation from him. That's the gospel. That's good news. Gospel is just a Greek word for good news. That's what we have. And we are all called as missionaries to bear that truth wherever we go. But we are also called to always be sending missionaries. We are, all, we are called to always be helping other people do their calling as well. Because we are not just an isolated group. No man is supposed to be an island in the Christian church. And so we are called to be part of a community of believers. And that has a local presence but it also has a global presence, and both matter. I loved when David Markey was here on Sunday, and he's sharing about the work that the Lord is doing in, in Georgia, the country of Georgia. And he said, we get to be on the front lines of what God is doing in Georgia, just like you guys get to be on the front lines of what God is doing in Madison. Right? David is, whatever he is, nine hours, nine time zones away. And he says, you know what? I'm doing the same thing you're doing. And we get to send each other right? The Marquis pray for our church. We pray for the Marquis. We're sending each other out. We're blessing each other. And John is saying, hey, Gaius, keep doing that. Keep doing it faithfully. And he says there's specifically, then he goes on to an idea of financial support. It is appropriate and responsible for Christians to help support other Christians in their ministry. And that may sometimes entail, hey, this person is overseas where there's different financial problems and there's, you know, there's money needed for visas and travel expenses, whatever else, it may also entail, and we, he says it here, he says, if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. John says, hey, you're doing great if we send people out equipped such that they don't have to take money from the people they're ministering to. There's something wonderful about when Christians get to help underwrite a ministry or a mission or a missionary to the point where that person can go out and, and minister to people in person and say, there's no charge for what I'm doing. No, I'm here to bless you and to serve you because other people have actually taken care of that because they are helping send me to you because they, by the Spirit of God, love you in truth. And so they want to actually you know, equip me to go out to help reach you, so that I don't, I'm not taking money from you. And, there, and there's something wonderful that happens when Christians get to do that. And he says, we therefore ought to receive such, or some translation reads, support such, that we may become fellow workers for the truth. So we are all called to be doers of the word, but we are also all called to be senders of the word. And we send the word of God by prayer but also practically by financial support. And this is where I can say this with, a, with an awful lot of boldness because I'm not asking you to send money to me because that'd be dumb. I'm asking you to send money to those who need it to carry out the word of God. Okay, there are ministries here in town like Life Choices. There are missionaries all around the world like David and Deborah, like Aaron and Vicki Moon, like Mac and Caitlin. Okay, people you guys have met who are sending the word of God. And some of those people are out where they're at and they're sending the word of God. And they're, they're just, they're, it's just rippling out. And we get to be a part of it. He says, we're fellow workers. There's something, there's something just profound 
about the fact that when we partner with someone around the world, we will someday get to heaven and God will say, hey, you did a great job in Thailand or in Georgia or in Papua New Guinea. And we'll say, I never even went there. And he says, no, you went there. Your prayers went there. Your, your, your support went there. You encouraged the believers there and they were empowered by the Holy Spirit and encouraged by your practical application and that bore fruit. And you are a recipient of the blessing of that. We get to be part of that by, by the generosity that John is encouraging Gaius to walk in. Christians, there's, there's no, and this is why churches should never set a fixed amount of, oh, here's how much a, a Christian should give. A lot of people start to say, you know, 10% is a good ballpark range to start with. Yeah, it's a great ballpark range to start with. But you should pray about it and ask God, God, what do you want from me? Because it's all God's anyways. He gave it all to us. And so John is saying, hey, Gaius, you get to go, you get to be a part of what God is doing around the world and in the ministries that God is starting and sustaining around the world, wherever you are at. Your role, wherever you are at, is valid and vital for the health of the church globally. And now John's going to shift gears after telling Gaius how much he appreciates him and how well he's doing and how he should continue doing well. He's going to give us a slight shift and say, hey, by the way, this guy in the church is a major problem. So verse 9, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Do you get the suspicion that Diotrephes may not be the nicest guy in the world? Diotrephes, first and foremost, John's first accusation sounds strong, but it's exactly what it is. John's saying it's more a declaration, truthfully. John's first declaration of where Diotrephes is in sin is he loves to have preeminence. Diotrephes is the guy who sees the church as his opportunity to be on top of something, as his opportunity to look awesome. And in his pursuit of that, John outlines other things that he does. John says he does not receive us, and he's prating against us with malicious words. He's not receiving the letters John is writing, which is, if you think about it, kind of an intense claim to arrogance. I mean, John at this point is the last surviving eyewitness of Jesus' ministry. And Diotrephes says, yeah, yeah, no. John doesn't know what he's talking about. And he's prating against him with malicious words. Diotrephes refuses to receive corrective truth, and he also feels the need to tear John down. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren. He's not sending people out. He's not receiving people in to, to demonstrate hospitality and equip them up so they can then be sent out again. And he forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Diotrephes is a guy who says, you know, I will tell you what ministries you may support, and if you cross the line, I will put you out of the church. Because I love to have the preeminence, and I happen to be your spiritual leader. The exalted Reverend Holy Father is here to tell you what you need to do. And John says, you know what? When I come, I'm going to call to mind what he's doing. I'm going to remind everybody that he's off his rocker and needs to be dealt with. Because John is not about who gets the preeminence. Now, bear in mind, this is John is the old guy. At an earlier point in John's life, oh, John was all about preeminence. Right? John 
And during Jesus' ministry, John and his brother James got their mom to go talk to Jesus and say, hey, I want you to do whatever I'm about ready to ask you for. And Jesus said, why don't you tell me what you want first? She said, I want my two sons to sit on your right hand and your left hand when you come in the kingdom. Like, nothing big. I just want them to be the two most important men in all of human history once you establish your, your throne on earth. And Jesus said, um, no. But that's what John wanted, okay? John wanted to be known as the greatest Christian of all time. And now he's walked with the Lord for 50-some years, and he's just, you know, hey, I'm just an old guy, writing you a letter. Keep doing what you're doing. Right? John, John has let the Holy Spirit work in his life for decades. And the Holy Spirit has, has whittled away at John's desire for preeminence. And now John is in a position to, to be aware, by his humility, of another person's pride and to deal with it. And so after giving us the example of Diotrephes in verse 11, he says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. He says, hey, don't be like Diotrephes. Don't, don't desire to have the preeminence. Don't refuse corrective truth. Don't, don't have, see the church as this place where you get to climb to the top by pushing other people down. You know what? Imitate what's good. And he then gives us an example of another person in the church. Demetrius has a good testimony from all. And from the truth itself, and we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. So Diotrephes loves to have the preeminence. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. Truth itself declares that Demetrius is a cool guy. Think about that for a second. That you could say, I tell you what, anybody who knows their Bible knows that Demetrius is a cool guy. That's a pretty, like, that's a pretty significant compliment. Right? So John says, okay, look. Here's Diotrephes. Don't imitate what's evil. Imitate what's good. Demetrius, you know what I'm talking about. If you, are, if you know the word of God at all, you know that Demetrius is a solid dude. So, and, what do we, and that's, that's it. We don't know anything else in all of Scripture about Diotrephes and Demetrius. We don't know if Diotrephes repented or didn't. We don't know anything. What we know is Diotrephes wanted to be important. And he has successfully been the example for 2,000 years of how not to be important in the church. He had this desire to put himself on top, and we still talk about him today and say, don't be like him. Demetrius, we don't know much about him, but we say, you know what? You've got to be like that guy. You walk with the, with the Lord, you walk in the Word of God close enough that people say, tell you what, anybody who knows their Bible knows that that person loves Jesus. Verse 13, I had many things to write, very similar ending as this other one, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. John says, I don't want to do this, aren't you, don't you kind of wonder, like, what would we have if he'd written it down? It's kind of an interesting thought, but we don't have it, you know why? Because face to face interactions matter. He says, I hope to see you shortly, we'll speak face to face, peace to you, our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. It's interesting, as he's, as he's wrapping up, he emphasizes, hey, you know what, again, there are some things, there's, there's a level of fellowship and relationship I want to have with you, I just can't do it over a letter, so I'm just going to hold on to it till we get there. We see each other in person. And then he says, greet the friends by name. You know, to greet someone by name, you've got to 
get kind of close to him. You got to get close enough to know him. And it's a great little just, you know, zinger of an exhortation as we wrap up. Get close to people. Know people. Know them by name. Know the people in this church by name. Why? Because we're supposed to be sending each other out. We don't come to this church, you know, on Sunday mornings when we come together and we have worship and then, and then Dad says, hey, find somebody you can pray for. That's not to generate positive energy in the room. It's not to make us all feel good about ourselves. It's to equip each other so that we can send each other out. So you can say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Somebody says, well, I'm going to be praying for you this week that the Holy Spirit would empower you with that, with what you need. Somebody can say, hey, guess what? Praise the Lord. I got to watch God do this in a, in a situation at work. And we can say, man, that's awesome that God is working in your life and in the life of your coworker, and we can be built up. We can be praying for that person, but we can also be encouraged to know, wow, God is, is working in quiet moments. But we only do that if we know each other. We only do that if we fellowship. I, I love, it's, it's, it's memorable, if not good. Somebody said, what is fellowship? It's two fellows in the same ship. You get out of your ship, you get in my ship, and we're going to have fellowship. And you can kind of laugh at it, but you know what? It's true. If we're sailing in two opposite directions, you know what we don't have? Fellowship. But you get two fellows in the same ship, and what have we got? Fellowship. Guess what? If you're in the pursuit of Christ, and I'm in the pursuit of Christ, we're in the same ship. If you love the Word of God, and I love the Word of God, we're in the same ship. If you're walking in, in the Spirit, and I'm walking in the Spirit, if you're sending me and I'm sending you, you know what we are? We're in the same ship. And so we can greet each other by name. So that's Second and Third John. Next week we're going to get into the book of Jude. Jude is... Uh, he's the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And he writes as probably, according to church history, the second-to-last surviving eyewitness of Jesus' ministry. So he probably died shortly before John, but Jude also is going to write us a letter as an old guy and give us warnings and exhortations for the church. It's going to be awesome. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it has relevance to us tonight almost 2,000 years after it was written. Your Holy Spirit is still working and still speaking. And God, we want to still be listening. And so we pray that your word would go deep into our hearts, that each one of us right now, that you would soften any hard spots, that you would pull out any distractions, but that we would let your word go in and bear fruit, that we would be changed by it. And God, we want to receive the exhortations that John has given us. We want to walk with you. We want to be sending even as we are being sent. We want to be carrying out the message of the gospel wherever we go because we have the good news. We have the real truth, the true truth. We pray that you would give us opportunities, chances, encounters where we can spread the truth that you've given us to the world around us. God, give us a missionary vision for the world around us. And we ask and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.